times in our effort Let's not forget that the one we have been instructed to go and do likewise, that he was one who faced rejection. In one of the most famous messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 and 4, we read this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In his own ministry, Jesus himself would declare to his apostles that he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's recorded in Luke chapter 17 and verse 25. So this morning, as we continue our study of Jesus' life in order to learn what, go, what, what, what going and doing like him ultimately entails, we turn our attention to the one recorded trip he made to the, his hometown of Nazareth, because in that story, he will model for us how we are to handle rejection in the context of ministry. So I want us to turn to Luke chapter 4. At times, we'll also jump to Matthew chapter 13 or Mark chapter 6, because Jesus' rejection in Nazareth is recorded in all three of those locations. In fact, it's uh, Matthew chapter 13, I should say that, verse 54, that says Jesus came to his hometown and taught in their synagogues. What I want you to consider with me this morning is how the people of Nazareth reacted to Jesus. Initially, they react to Jesus with acceptance. Now, think about this. He arrives in his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he begins to teach. You can't underestimate the significance of the details here. When Jesus came to Nazareth, he didn't just barge into the synagogue that Saturday and demand an opportunity to address the crowd. He received an invitation to speak. There is such a thing as a synagogue ruler. We will encounter a few of those throughout the text of Scripture. And that individual has a say-so about who's going to speak during the service at the synagogue. You can go to Acts chapter 13 when Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey. They arrived in the town of Pisidian Antioch. And there we are told that they were invited to address the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So here's what we need to understand. Jesus has arrived in Nazareth, and on the Sabbath day, he's at the synagogue worshiping God. He's going to receive an invitation to address the congregation. That means that he has become so well known by this point as a teacher so well respected as a teacher that the synagogue of his childhood invited him to address them during their Sabbath service. Now, if you look at Luke chapter 4, you'll notice that the story of Jesus' rejection in Nazareth takes place shortly after his temptation. It's occurring chronologically in Luke 
fairly early in his ministry. But there is a couple of verses, or there are a couple of verses, that appear between the temptation account and the Nazareth account. Those verses say this in verse 14 and 15, that Jesus returned from the wilderness in Judea, where the the temptation occurred. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. In other words, before Luke tells us about his trip to Nazareth, his teaching in the synagogue that day, before all that happened, Luke indicates that Jesus returned to the region of Galilee after enduring the temptation and began his teaching ministry all before he got to Nazareth. And this is interesting. It's it's supported by the fact that in Matthew's account, multiple teaching opportunities are recorded prior to his appearance in Nazareth. You have the entire Sermon on the Mount preceding his trip to Nazareth. One of his most powerful parables is told immediately before he arrives at that synagogue in Nazareth. It's the parable of the sower recorded in the first half of Matthew chapter 13. On top of that, Jesus' healing ministry has taken off. You can see in Matthew's account, before he gets to the rejection at Nazareth, you can see that he records the healing of a leper, the healing of a paralytic, a healing of a man with a withered hand, the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the casting out of demons into a herd of pigs, and bringing Jairus' daughter back to life. All of those events in Matthew and Mark occurred prior to his appearance in Nazareth. What that means is that by the time Jesus arrived in his hometown, his reputation as both a miracle worker and a teacher preceded him. So in inviting Jesus to read from the scroll of Isaiah and expound on what he read, his hometown synagogue demonstrated their acceptance of him as a distinguished teacher. And Matthew chapter 13, verse 54, not only says that Jesus came to his hometown and taught in their synagogue, but it also tells us that his hearers were astonished as they listened to him. Mark says the same thing, and Luke, in chapter 4, verse 22, expounds on this astonishment a little bit more. He says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is not an unusual reaction for people to Jesus' teaching. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, you can read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The point is that not only was Jesus invited to address this synagogue on the Sabbath, but this audience was impressed by what they heard. They couldn't believe that the man who was speaking to them was Mary and Joseph's boy. They initially accepted him as an authoritative teacher on par with, if not superior to, the scribes or the teachers of the law. 
You see, their initial reaction to Jesus as he read from the scroll of Isaiah, their initial reaction was astonishment. They accepted Jesus right off the bat. They were excited to hear from Jesus initially. But all that changes because their ultimate reaction to Jesus was rejection. The audience suddenly and drastically changes their tune. You can see this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 57. We're told that they took offense at him. Now, why were they offended? What did Jesus do that offended them? According to Luke chapter 4, Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah and asked to read a passage from it and then expound on that passage. That's what a reader of the scroll would do. Jesus chose to read what we know as Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, which according to Luke's account read like this, Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, for Jesus, this seems to be one of the most important messianic prophecies in all of the Old Testament. He would reference it again in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, when John the Baptist had sent some messengers from prison to ask if he was the one who was to come, or should they be looking for another. And Jesus cited this very same prophecy to them. Now, it seems the reason Jesus cared so much about this passage from Isaiah chapter 61 is because it identifies the evidence by which someone can know whether or not he was really the Messiah. Isaiah's prophecy indicates that you can't identify who the Messiah is because he's the one who proclaims good news and he's the one that restores sight and he's the one that so on and so on. Now, Remember Jesus' reputation before he got to Nazareth. That audience had heard of his miraculous activity as well as his teaching ministry before he even arrived on the scene. So when Jesus referenced this passage from Isaiah and then said, according to Luke chapter 4 and verse 21, referenced Isaiah's prophecy and then said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They immediately knew what he was saying. They didn't miss the implication here. They knew that he was claiming to be the one about whom Isaiah was prophesying. And that's where their offense began. So journey over to Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 54, 55, and 56 with me. And look at what the audience is saying to themselves as they listen to Jesus say, Today... This has been fulfilled. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54 through 56. This audience in the Nazareth synagogue says to themselves, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did, then did this man get all these things? 
See, I think that crowd is struggling to process the identity of Jesus. It's as if they're saying to themselves, isn't he one of us? Wasn't he raised right here like us? Didn't he grow up just like us? I think they're offended because his claim to be the Messiah demeans them, not God, though I'm sure that could be part of it as well. See, I think they're going through this process of of who does he think he is? He's one of us, and he's claiming to be the Messiah. And they're offended because this man, that's the term they use, this man who they've known since he was a boy is now claiming to be someone better than them. And that doesn't compute for them because they remember seeing his humanity in a way that no one else ever had. Some of them probably remember watching him make mistakes, not sins, mistakes. You know, he grew up in a carpentry shop. Maybe they remember that time he hit his thumb with a hammer. Maybe they remember being out in the streets playing with him and he tripped over a rock. And they think to themselves, if he was the son of God, he wouldn't make mistakes like that, right? Do you think Jesus ever injured himself? Or is your perception of Jesus one that he was so perfect that he never had an accident? When he was an infant, do you think he was born potty trained or do you think he had a few accidents? See, sometimes our perception of perfection means that he never does something wrong. But in reality, Jesus never sinned. That doesn't mean he never stumbled over a rock or hit his thumb with a hammer or something like that. But they can remember that kind of stuff. Or maybe they remember because they could have been part of that caravan that went down to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. And, and, and the whole town would travel together. And, and you would have relatives and friends. And you would trust that someone else is helping you watch your kids. And that's probably the reason Mary and Joseph didn't realize he wasn't there. Because they assumed he was with so-and-so's family. Until they got to their campsite that night and realized he wasn't with anyone. You ever done that? Going out to lunch with some friends after worship and you left the kid at the church building because you thought they were riding with your friends? I remember in Pensacola, I had to give a few kids a ride to their parents because I was the last one to leave the church and they forgot their kids. I don't know if it was on purpose or not. Maybe they remember making that trip with Jesus' family as part of the caravan, and they remember how he got lost and separated and stayed back in Jerusalem, and in their opinion, that was an act of disobedience, even though it really wasn't because they didn't have the full story. Maybe they can remember something like that. Or more importantly, maybe they can remember the scandalous circumstances around his birth. And maybe that impacts their view of him and his claim to be the Messiah. You see, it was, seems like it was hard for them to accept this identity. In their eyes, his claim to be the Christ is foolishness at best and arrogance at worst. 
But that's not the only reason they get offended here. If that's all there was to it, they may have been able to deal with that to some degree. But they get enraged over what he says next. And it appears in Luke chapter 4, between verse 23 and 27. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus knew what his audience was saying to one another. He knew their hearts. He knew that they didn't believe he was the Messiah. And the only reason they were there was because they wanted to see a sign like Capernaum got to see or like Cana got to see. And one thing Jesus refused to be all throughout his ministry was a sideshow act. So he, in effect, said that he wasn't going to perform for them because they weren't deserving of his power. He referenced Elijah and Elisha because in both of those stories, those prophets are being sent to non-Jewish people. And he's telling his hometown that because, because you don't really believe I'm the Messiah, I'm not performing a sign for you. And those Gentiles, those heathens, those unbelievers are more deserving of my time and my attention than are you. That's when they get enraged. It was infuriating to them because it was a slap in their face to their heritage. How dare he imply that the Gentiles are more deserving than they when they are God's chosen people. They're the ones keeping Mosaic law. They're the ones that are descendants of Abraham. In fact, this so infuriated them that we're told they were filled with wrath and attempted to execute him by throwing him off a cliff. It's at this point you see this audience, which initially accepted Jesus, now outright rejects him. So in Nazareth, we witness Jesus being rejected by his hometown when he went there to share with them the good news. And this is useful information for you and I because we are inevitably going to experience rejection when we go and do likewise. And so, after telling this story and looking at the events that unfold here, I now want us to consider what we can learn about going and doing from how Jesus reacted to this audience. The first thing I noticed that Jesus doesn't do, and let me tell you this, sometimes I find that what didn't happen in a particular story is just as important as what did happen. And I think that's the case here with this incident in Nazareth, that what Jesus didn't do is what we need to focus on. And the first thing I noticed that Jesus did not do 
is he did not capitulate to people's feelings. Now, capitulate, that's a big word. That's my way of trying to sound smart up here. Thesauruses come in handy, don't they? Capitulate simply means to acquiesce. Oh, another big word. Capitulate means to comply or surrender. It it means that you're going to give in to someone else's demands. And so what I'm saying here is that Jesus did not give in to the feelings of his audience. He didn't say, hey, I need to change my message to accommodate the feelings of these people. See, here in Nazareth, it's clear that Jesus had a captive audience, an audience that was astonished, an audience that marveled at his words. And when he realized that they were offended, it would have been easy for him to change his tune, to take back some of his words, to soften his message a little bit. He could have said, I I didn't mean to imply that the Gentiles are more deserving of my attention than you. I was just trying to show you how God cares about all people, including the Gentiles. Or or he could have said, hey, listen, I, I told you I wouldn't do any miracles here, but let me just do one small one for you. Then you'll believe and we can move on with our, our day and get on with the message. Jesus didn't give in to their offendedness. Jesus never changed his message to accommodate his audience. He wasn't afraid to offend his audience with the truth of the gospel. And he willingly willingly accepted their rejection by not capitulating to their feelings. And this isn't the only time this happened. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus got into a lengthy theological conversation with the crowd that followed him. And if you go over John chapter 6, you can see that at one point he says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We're told a few verses later in John chapter 6 and verse 60 that many of his disciples heard this, and when they heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then a few verses after that, in John chapter 6 and verse 66, those disciples who had heard this and realized it was a hard saying because it amounted to cannibalism in their minds, we're told, John chapter 6 verse 66, that after this, many of his disciples, many of his disciples, not just the crowd, but people that were disciples, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said something that was absolutely true, but was incredibly difficult to accept. And he was unapologetic in such a moment. You can also see this with the rich young ruler. You can go to Matthew chapter 19 or Luke chapter 18 where the story is recorded. And Jesus is interacting with this guy who has asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after Jesus basically learns that this guy has managed to keep all of Mosaic law, he points out the one thing that this guy needed to do in order to inherit eternal life. And so he gives him this instruction. Go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And this was a difficult message for a rich man like this guy to hear. 
We're told in Matthew chapter 19, verse 22, that this rich young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Once again, we have another example of Jesus boldly stating the truth and accepting when somebody rejects that truth. Not accepting that individual, but accepting the rejection. See, Jesus didn't change his message just because somebody didn't like it. And in order for us to go and do likewise, we cannot be guilty of capitulating, acquiescing, or accommodating people in in, in order to get them to accept the message we proclaim. Refusing to capitulate ultimately means accepting that some people are going to be offended by the gospel. There are many religious groups today who when their message is no longer politically correct, they change the message, and we can't do that. Remember Paul's words, 2 Timothy chapter 4? Verse 1 through 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will no longer endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul's instructions are for us to unapologetically proclaim God's word at all times. And not to change it. Not to dilute it or to conform it to what people want to hear. It's for that very reason that we can expect rejection from some. And so part of the point of this sermon today is to make us understand that rejection is okay in the sense that If they're rejecting God's word, it's not that they're rejecting you. They're rejecting what is unchangeable and what is true and what is absolute. And we must not capitulate to their feelings about it. We must stand where truth stands. And that means that some people will reject it. But I want you to notice something else that Jesus doesn't do here in Nazareth. Jesus does not hesitate to move on. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 30, we're told that when the city rejected Jesus, when, when, when their emotions reached the boiling point, and they escorted him to the edge of town because they were going to throw him off this cliff, we're told in Luke chapter 4 and verse 30 that he simply passed through their midst and went away. Mark chapter 6 and verse 6 adds that he went about among the villages teaching. In other words, once they rejected him, Jesus walked away and he went to another town and started teaching there. Jesus, interestingly, didn't linger in Nazareth after he was rejected. 
He didn't prolong his stay in hopes that they might change their mind. When they rejected him, he didn't feel obligated to remain in their midst and try to convince them to accept him. He recognized that they were not ready to be receptive, so it was time to move on to other locations that were potentially ready to hear his message. And it's easy for us to understand why Jesus left Nazareth. They were trying to kill him. We can understand why he left Nazareth. But sometimes it's hard for us to apply this principle to our own evangelistic situations. Jesus here demonstrated for us something that he would instruct the apostles to do when he sent them out on their first evangelistic campaign. I want you to look at Mark chapter 6 and verse 11. In Mark's account, Jesus sent his apostles on their first campaign immediately after his rejection in Nazareth. And according to Mark chapter 6 and verse 11, he gave them this instruction. If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And we see an instance of this principle put into practice in Acts chapter 13 and verse 51, when Paul and Barnabas were in Pisidian of Antioch. Excuse me, Antioch of Pisidia. I said that backwards. When Paul and Barnabas were there, they shook off the dust from their feet against that town and went to another city after some Jewish leaders in that town stirred up persecution against them. The practice of shaking off dust derived from a Jewish custom. A Jewish custom where they would shake the dust off their feet when they returned to their homeland, when they returned to the promised land after venturing outside of it. The idea was that they did not want to contaminate the holy land with dirt from heathen land. And so when Jesus instructed the apostles to shake the dust off their feet, it was implying that they can treat that town or those individuals as heathens, as people who have rejected God. And therefore, this act symbolized that the, the, the proclaimers of his word, that they had warned a city and were blameless regarding its judgment. The takeaway for us from the fact that Jesus did not hesitate to leave Nazareth and that he instructed the apostles to shake off the dust from their feet is, is that there's a point at which we have to move on after being rejected. There's a point at which you have to choose to search for more potentially receptive soil. This is not a message you expect to hear in a sermon. Hey, Sometimes when you get rejected out there as you are engaging in evangelism, you have, to, you have to move on. But it's a message that's in Scripture. But I want to be cautious here because it would be easy for us to equate moving on as to giving up. I want you to understand shaking the dust off your feet is not a total giving up on someone. 
Because if you go back to Acts chapter 13, and you see the one instance where Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet toward Antioch of Pisidia, you'll find out that one chapter later in Acts chapter 14, they returned to that town to strengthen and encourage the believers and to appoint elders in that congregation. In other words, Paul and Barnabas didn't give up on that town. They just left it in that moment because the soil wasn't quite ready and there was potentially more receptive soil down the road. So when you encounter rejection, I think it's important for us to notice that when Jesus rejected, was rejected, he knew there was a point at which he had to walk away. And that Jesus instructed the apostles that there was a point at which they had to shake the dust off their feet. So when you are rejected, don't feel obligated to persist in the face of hard-heartedness. You can move on to search for a more promising opportunity, but don't permanently, do not permanently give up on the one you shook off. Pray for them. Pray that their heart will be softened. Pray that a different opportunity will present itself for you to share God's word with them. And look for that opportunity to manifest itself. Most of my sermons are intended to be motivational. But thus far, this sermon has primarily been instructional. And the reason for that the reason that we reference this event in the life of Jesus in Nazareth is because we need to be ready to face rejection and evangelism. See, I think one of the reasons that we fail to go and do could just be because we tried it once before and it didn't work. We got rejected, and then we got dejected. We lost the enthusiasm. We were discouraged and disheartened to try again. And so I share this message for the sole purpose of us realizing that rejection will happen. And I want us to look at how Jesus handled it so that we'll be prepared to handle it ourselves, and not give up on the mission. You see, we live in a world, we live in a world that tells us to not take no for an answer, that tells us that failure is not an option, that tells us if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And guess what? We try to fit all of those mantras into evangelism. But those mantras which are great for a business venture, they don't necessarily apply to evangelism because evangelism is not a business venture. Think about it. When it comes to evangelism, we're not responsible for its success. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6-8, through 8, that we may plant the seed and we might water the seed, but the growth of that seed is God's responsibility. Your job and my job is to make sure the seed is sown. Sometimes that seed is going to come in contact with hard soil that it can't penetrate. 
Sometimes that seed is going to come in contact with rocky soil that prevents it from developing roots. Sometimes that seed is going to come in contact with thorny soil that chokes it. Sometimes that seed is going to come in contact with good soil. And the Lord will be the one who gives the increase. So this morning, the takeaway I want you to have from this lesson is simply don't get discouraged when you go and do and it's rejected. It's going to happen. But that doesn't mean you're not doing something for the kingdom. And that doesn't mean that the seed that you sowed in the process can't produce a harvest down the road. This morning we look at the life of Jesus to make some parallels for our life because he's the one we are to go and do likewise. And this morning, no matter what facet of your life you examine, if you look at it and it's not like Christ, then it's not right. So this morning we offer an invitation to everyone that if you need to change in any way to be more like Christ, then come. You may need to make a first step of confessing Him as your Lord and Savior, repenting of your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. But whatever you need to do to be like Christ, that's what we invite you to do right now. While together we stand and sing.
song this morning will be 684. This world is not my home. Encourage you to fill out your attendance um, online. And as always, sit tight after the closing prayer, and we'll be dismissed orderly. <clears throat> this world is not my home. This world is not my home. I'm just a passenger.